This week I received a phone call from one of my friends in college, and he was just on the road for a while, for a couple hours, and he just wanted to try to catch up with some college friends if we were available, you know, in the middle of a weekday. And I was available for a little bit, and so I, I talked to them, but after about 15 minutes I said to him, Dan, this is going to sound really ironic because this Sunday's sermon is called The Tyranny of Time, but I have a whole lot I have to do this afternoon and I'm feeling quite a bit of stress about it. And so I'm going to need to wrap up this conversation really soon. And it's the idea of the tyranny of time. That we have good things we want to do. But then we have other things that we need to do. And other things, and other things, and other things. And we just feel this pressure, this tyranny of time. That, that pulls us in various directions. I think of a text message I got just the very day before. It's from a woman here at the church who was just letting me know about a uh, pastor's conference that she saw uh, that she thought might be helpful and encouraging for me. And I looked it up and thought, yeah, this does sound really, really good. And I told her I'd try to check it out online. But I also said, you know, as is always the case, time is the limiting factor. Time is the limiting factor. The tyranny of time. And I know I'm not the only person who experiences these realities of things we want to do, things we know we should do, but, you know, time is always pressing us in different directions. Now, today we are talking about the topic of time, how to view time, how we use our time. If you're following along in the Bible, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes 3. Now, really, I think that most of us, if not all of us, have a complex relationship with time. Now, on one hand, sometimes we want time to go really quickly. We say things like, I can't wait, or how much longer? We want sometimes time to go really fast, but other times we lament the passing of time. We say, I just wish I had more time. No, I would, but I don't have time right now. Wow. Where did that time go? It just flew by. You know, we have this relationship with time that we all live in time. We all experience time. But sometimes we want it to go fast, sometimes slower. Sometimes it, it troubles us. Sometimes we just want it to go as fast as possible. You know, whether we like it or not, though, the clock is ticking. And with every tick of the clock, our day is winding down. And with every tick of the clock, our week is winding down. And with every tick, our life is winding down. Now on the subject of time, we are looking today at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I want to point our attention now to a video where we're going to hear our passage read for us. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to tear down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, and a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search, and a time to give up, a time to keep, and a time to throw away, a time to tear, and a time to mend, a time to be silent, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, 
a time for war, and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and take pleasure in all their toil. This is God's gift to man. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to count. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every work. I also said in my heart, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? So we're going to look at this passage in three parts. And the first part is in verses 1 through 8. It is a poem that is very well known. Even if people don't attend church, if they've never attended church here in America, they've probably heard significant portions of verses 1 through 8, specifically because of the 1960s song called Turn, 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 that quotes practically verbatim from verses 1 through 8 of Ecclesiastes 3. Now, I said verses 1 through 8, it's a poem, and it shows us that God is sovereign over everything in life. Now, in this poem, there are 14 verses or 14 lines specifically, and each line consists of two terms. And it's a pair of terms, like a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, and a time to heal. And there are 14 pairs like this, and some aspects of this poem might seem a little bit confusing. I think of how through the years I've read it and I've seen, you know, that time to hate, a time to kill. Does this mean that there are times when it's good and appropriate to hate others or, you know, are we supposed to kill someone at a certain time because there's a time to kill? That's not at all what it's saying. No, each of the pairs in this poem is a figure of speech called a merism. It's M-E-R-I-S-M. A merism is when you have two terms or two ideas that are on polarities from one another, opposite sides of a spectrum, and those two terms taken together represent the whole, everything in between those two terms. Whether we know it or not, we use merisms sometimes, that figure of speech. For instance, perhaps you've said or you've heard, you know, I searched high and low. Now, when you say that phrase or hear that phrase, like let's say, you know, I searched high and low, and you're talking about within your house, 
Does that mean that literally you went to the highest point of your house and then you went to the lowest point of the house? Not necessarily. What it means to search high and low is, you know, I searched everywhere. High and low are two terms, polarities, opposite ends of the spectrum. They represent everything between. It says, you know what, I, I just searched everywhere. We use these types of figures of speech, and that's what's happening here in these 14 lines in the poem of verses 1 through 8 in Ecclesiastes 3. When you take birth and death together as bookends, it represents the entirety of human life on this earth. Weeping and laughter represent the entire spectrum of human emotions. War and peace represent the entire scope of a nation's experience they could have with their neighboring nations, and so on. Now, even the number 14 is significant. In the Bible, the number 7 represents wholeness or completion or even perfection. 7 times 2 is 14. So it's kind of like a double dose of perfection uh, of saying that in this list of 14 merisms, it represents the fact that God is sovereign over the entire universe. Everything humans can experience, God is still in charge. He's still in control. There is an order and a rhythm that God has designed into the universe. That's why in verse 1 it says, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. What this does is give us the assurance that even in those times of sadness, or hatred, or death, or war, God is still sovereign and in charge. And for us, as we're talking in the series about the search for meaning, This understanding that God is sovereign is foundational to having meaning and hope in life. Because it reminds us, because since God is sovereign, it means life isn't random. It means that our actions on this earth are not necessarily in vain. It means that we are not just random globs of matter floating through space just hoping that time and chance deal us a good hand. No, God is sovereign, and that can give us hope and really a foundation for meaning in our lives. This is why the search for meaning must start with God. Now, the author of Ecclesiastes, we've been calling him Kohelet, which is the Hebrew term that means teacher or preacher. That name occurs throughout uh, this book. We've been talking throughout the series how he has a cynical perspective on things. And cynicism comes through even here. He points to the fact that God's sovereign. He holds all time in his hands. But, he says in verse 9, what gain does the worker have from all his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to people to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart. Yet man cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So the second section of Ecclesiastes 3 shows that even though God is sovereign, we are limited in seeing God's plan and perspective. God is sovereign, but we are limited. Verse 11 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. So Kohelet recognizes there's a lot of beauty and a lot of good in this universe. There's a plan of God that he is working out here in time But a major limiting factor, Kohelet says, is that we are so limited in our understanding. Yeah, God is God. He's sovereign. But we are finite. And we struggle to really understand why things are happening and why they happen when they happen. In verse 10, he says, God has put eternity into man's heart. Yet man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. 
So he, he has put eternity in our hearts. That is a, such a beautiful idea. It's, it's amazing. It's so rich. We are made in God's image. It's like God has taken a part of his, his eternal, infinite nature and deposited it into our lives. He has put eternity in our hearts. And this shows why each of us have this innate desire for our lives to be tied into something bigger and more grand than just ourselves. We want to live with a sense of meaning and purpose and joy. And this is all tied back to the reality of not only being made in God's image, but having eternity put in our hearts. But Kohelet, again, he sees this problem that we are finite, that we cannot fully understand the eternal plan of God and what our place is in that plan, and he's grieving that. Picture with me uh, just an idea. I was born uh, very nearsighted. Um, nearsightedness means that you can only see clearly what's up near to you. You can't see clearly when things are a significant dis- distance away. And before I had LASIK surgery when I was 20 years old, I was so nearsighted that without glasses or contacts, I had to hold something about an inch and a half to two inches from my face in order to be able to see it clearly. I mean, that, that's very nearsighted. It's actually considered legally blind. Now imagine that you are that nearsighted. You can only see clearly about two inches from your face, and you go to the Sistine Chapel. I mean, amazing artwork all around. Now, what would your experience be like in the Sistine Chapel if you can only see clearly what's two inches in front of your face? It'd be blurry. You wouldn't be able to see clearly. Would it? You wouldn't, I mean, you'd know, okay, something's there. I mean, you'd probably get little tiny glimpses when you get really close to something. You could see, you know, there, there's something beautiful here, but you could not understand the full picture of what is there in the Sistine Chapel. And you have the sense there's something, I mean, you think that ceiling's so high. I mean, it's incomprehensible what's actually up there because you can't have any chance of seeing it if you're that nearsighted. But you can still grasp there's something there, something big and something grand. I can't quite see it, but I know it's there. And that sense of nearsightedness in the presence of something big and grand is what Kohelet is picturing in his mind as he pictures God as sovereign, he's eternal, he is grand, he has a great plan. But we are finite, and we as humans then struggle to understand what is really happening around us. So this, this sense of spiritual nearsightedness is a big problem. He says, God has put eternity in man's heart, yet man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So there's something big there. And our hearts yearn for eternity, but we are stuck in time with a desperate sense of limited perspective in what is happening in the big picture. So that is Kohelet's perspective. And making this much worse for him is that the clock is ticking toward death. That leads us into the third part of Ecclesiastes 3. Now I did some research and found out that the average lifespan of an American male is about 76 years. 76 years. Now, if you're a woman, you can tack on an extra five years or so to that. Uh, But I, I did some additional math And I calculated that if I'm an average guy and I live to an average American male lifespan, that means I have about 12,000 days left on this earth. 12,000 days. And the clock is ticking. That means that for every single day I live, that's one less day that I have left on this earth. And it's really the same for all of us. But the reality is, 
we are not guaranteed to be average or to be a, live longer than average on this earth. We don't know if we're going to live multiple decades more. We don't know if we're going to live just years or if we only have months or weeks or even days left on this earth. We don't know. And that can obviously be very, very disconcerting just to realize that clock is ticking. The days are counting down till that final day that we have on this earth. And for Kohelet, this was almost, I mean, just, this was terrible. It was devastating for him. This reality of death troubled him so deeply. It's kind of like this, this sense of the finality of death for Kohelet is hanging like a deep shadow, darkening everything that he experiences in life. I mean, if you're trying to figure out why is Ecclesiastes so cynical and just so despairing so often, it's because it's written from the perspective that life on this earth is all there is. And, and we always have the shadow of death just hanging over us. And it makes things just seem so meaningless. That's why he said in verse 18 of chapter 3, I said in my heart with regard to mankind that God is testing them so they may see that they themselves are but beasts or animals. For what happens to people and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, and there is referring to the grave. All are from dust, and to dust all return. Death really is hanging over us all if we look at it from that perspective. Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian author, said something very similar. He said, my question, which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying at the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was this, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why, why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed thus. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? This is the same type of question that Kohelet was wrestling with. Is there any meaning in life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? This is a big question because the clock is ticking. We face the tyranny of time. And that is the end of Ecclesiastes 3. But it's not the end of our message. Um, I want to keep going a little bit longer because, you know, that's a bleak way to look at life. But in essence, that's how many people do look at life. But let's look now at Ecclesiastes 3 through the lens of our lives and the gospel. Now, first of all, we have to understand that Kohelet looked at time and death from a worldly human perspective. From a worldly human perspective. He was essentially looking at life here on this earth like it is the game of life. I imagine that many of us have played the game of life. It's that board game, been around for a long, long time. In the board game, you have participants in the game. They're playing the game. They have these little cars. They represent their little pieces. They're, they're doing a spinner, moving the car around the board. And as you move around the board in the game of life, you accumulate uh, a job. You get a car. You, you get a spouse, you get a house, you accumulate some kids, you, you acquire some accomplishments, you make some money, and then at the end of the game you retire, you count it all up, and then you put it all back in the box and the game's over. And the outcome of that game really has little to no bearing on the rest of your life. 
Because it's all over, it's all gone back into the box. And that is essentially how Kohelet views life. That we live life here on this earth, we do some things, we make some accomplishments, we have some money, we may retire, we die. Then all the pieces of our life go back in the box. That is how he is viewing life. Now we have an advantage that Kohelet did not. He looked at his life in light of just the reality of death and how it all goes back in the box or goes in the ground. He said, what's the point? But we have an advantage that he doesn't, and it could be called progressive revelation, that God has revealed more over time than he had back then about his truth. For instance, Ecclesiastes 3.21, Kohelet said, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? He wasn't sure what happens after death. But we can know what happens after death. And we can know that Jesus secures hope and confidence beyond the grave. You know, in and of ourselves, because of our sin, we all deserve the spiritual death penalty. We all deserve to be separated from God for eternity. But God, in his great love and mercy, sent his son Jesus to the earth to live a perfect life, to die on the cross to pay the death penalty we deserve for our sins. He was resurrected, defeating sin and evil and death, and he's willing to share that victory with us when we come to him by faith and repentance. And so by Jesus dying for our sins and being resurrected, it shows that death doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have to be hanging over us with that sense of finality and fear and despair. Instead, in the face of death through Jesus, we can have hope and confidence. It changes the whole outlook. I think the Apostle Paul, I mean, he was very active in his earthly life, but for him, he had a very different perspective on death than Kohela had in Ecclesiastes. Because for Paul, as he considered his, his impending death, he knew the clock is ticking. He was in prison when he said what, what I'm going to say in just a moment. He knew that he could be executed, and in fact, he was eventually executed for his faith in Christ. But he said in Philippians 1 that for me, to die is gain. Death is not something, when you have faith in Jesus, it's not something to be feared. It's not something to despair over. Instead, there's a source of hope and confidence. Because he knows that after he dies, after that final tick of the clock of his life on earth, he will be alive in heaven with Jesus. To die is gain. That changes our whole perspective. And one of the other things this points to is that we can live our earthly lives in light of eternity. That our lives here on this earth are not confined to what happens here. It's not just that stuff goes back in the box and we're done and the impact of our lives is over. We can live our lives here on this earth in light of eternity now because we can have eternal life through Jesus. I have a broomstick here. I want you to imagine this broomstick extends infinitely long in that direction and infinitely long in that direction. That represents eternity. And then there's a little dot right here. That little dot represents our life here on this earth. And that dot here on this earth is where we live our day-to-day lives. It's in this dot that we go to school. It's in this dot that we work a job. It's in this dot that we may get married or have kids. It's in the dot that we have a car, that we may get in a car crashes, that we have health problems, that we have blessings. It's in this dot that we live day-to-day. And the dot is awfully small compared to eternity, isn't it? Now, for Kohelet, he was focused on what's happening in the dot. And he's only focused there. Life seems relatively pointless. 
we have to remember God has put eternity in our hearts. That he has made us eternal beings. And he's given us hope beyond the grave. So what that means is that we don't have to live our lives in such a way that is confined merely to what happens in this dot. But we can live our lives for the line of eternity. But the fact that we are made for eternity, that we are made for what is infinite, not just what's finite and temporal, shows why things of this earth can never ultimately satisfy us. Last week we looked at this epic quest that King Solomon was on in search of lasting meaning. I mean, he looked everywhere. Or at least many places. He looked everywhere under the sun. I mean, he, he looked at the accumulation of wealth and possessions. He looked at just accomplishing great building projects. He, he, he enjoyed a lot of sex. He enjoyed a lot of comedy, a lot of music. And he said, you know, I enjoyed these things in the moment. But in the end, they left me empty. They left him empty in the end. And the reason why is because he was trying to fill an infinite void with a finite thing. And when you do that, when you have eternity in our hearts, and you're trying to fill that eternal void with finite, temporary, earthly things, you won't ever be ultimately satisfied. That's what Solomon experienced. But we see this truth now, that we have eternity in our hearts, and we can live our lives in light of eternity. As Augustine said, we are made for God, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. And so, in this search for meaning, we need to understand that our meaning in life, in order to be durable and satisfying and godly, must be rooted in things that last for eternity. We must live not for the dot, but for the line. And again, this points to the importance of how we live our lives on this earth. And I think one of the things as we look at how we live our lives and how we use our time, one of the things that concerns me is how busy we are. Society seems to have become busier and busier and busier. I mean, we face the tyranny of time today in a way that perhaps no, one, no other society in human history ever has because of the busyness. And many of the things we invest our busyness in are good things in and of themselves. But the problem is sometimes in our busyness we get so caught up in good things we miss out on the best things. Or we get so caught up in the urgent things that we miss out on the important things. I mean, I, I deal with it. I know many of us do. I mean, you already heard from me the testimony of this week. Hearing good things, having good conversations, good opportunities that sometimes we don't pursue fully because we have other things and we have that tyranny of time. But it's so important that we use our time intentionally in the things that truly matter most. It's been said, if the devil can't make you bad, he will make you busy. Because in our busyness, we get so distracted for the things that are best and the things that are truly of God and the things that truly invest in eternity. Now, if you feel that burden of just the busyness of life and you want to try to reorient your life around what's truly important, I would commend a book to you. It is a relatively new book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. The author is John Mark Comer, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. This book is a, it's a convicting book. But it's a good reminder of the importance of, of investing our lives and investing our time in the things that really matter rather than getting so caught up in a hurry that we miss out on what is truly most important. Because our meaning in life must be based on what is eternal. 
We must invest in things that will not go back into the box when we die, that, that, that will extend beyond when memory of us on this earth uh, dies out. Because people on this earth will forget, but we have the opportunity to invest in eternity. So how do we do that? Well, I think one of the key questions is what actually lasts for eternity? There's not a lot that lasts for eternity. But one thing that does is people. People last for eternity. And with that in mind, I think of Jesus' two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commandments are two keys for investing our lives in what lasts for eternity. So what, what are the things that can help us to grow in our love for God? And then how do we orient our schedules to invest our time in those things? That's one way to invest in eternity. Invest our own love for God, our own relationship with him. But I think of the second greatest commandment, love, love your neighbor as yourself. How can we love others well? How can we invest in other people? How can we bless others? And I think tying that second greatest commandment back to the first is valuable too. If we are to love others, one of the best ways we can love others is to help them love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So how can we do that? How can we invest in their own spiritual growth? There are lots of different ways we can do both of these things of investing in our love for God, investing in others' spiritual growth, loving others well. There are lots of ways we can do that, but it is so, in, so important that we are intentional in how we invest our time in things that matter in light of eternity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul devoted the entire chapter to the implications of Jesus' resurrection. And, and he closed out that chapter in verse 58 saying, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Do you remember the refrain of Ecclesiastes? That one phrase that is repeated over and over. I mean, there are actually several phrases that repeat a bunch of times, but one stands above all the rest. It says, All is vanity. The idea that everything is in vain. But the gospel, here is that phrase, all is vanity, and it says, no, it's not. Not everything is in vain. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because Jesus has been resurrected. And that gives us hope and confidence beyond the grave. That if we invest our, thing, our lives in the things that matter in light of eternity, the pieces don't go back in the box when we die. They continue on into eternity. You know, Jesus has been resurrected, and this changes everything. This gives us, gives us hope, even in the face of death, because the clock is ticking. We will all at one point breathe our final breaths here on this earth. But we can have that promise that by investing our lives in things that help us grow in our love for God, that's investing in eternity. By investing our lives in being a blessing to others, in Jesus' name, by, by investing our lives and helping the others grow closer to God. That's an investment in eternity. By enjoying the journey, recognizing God gives us lots of good gifts and blessings, and we turn those back to God in thanks and praise, and we enjoy them, that's investing in eternity. And we can, we can rejoice in the fact that one day, through faith in Christ, we can be in heaven where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or crying or mourning or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. And all these things, we can find meaning 
in life. These things are all central to our meaning in life, and these things all flow from the gospel. Now, we're going to close our service today with two songs. The first song is one for us to reflect on, to reflect on the joy of Jesus' resurrection and its implications for us. And the second song is one for us all to join together in singing, and it sings of God's great faithfulness from beginning to end. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth to give us hope, to give us a sense of meaning. Because in and of ourselves, we would be eternally separated from God. In and of ourselves, we would be wandering aimlessly through life, looking for meaning, but never truly able to find it. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you give us a hope. You give us a future. And I pray that each one of us will be leaning on you, trusting in you to forgive us of our sins, trusting you to reconcile us with God the Father, trusting in you to give us a hope and a confidence in a future beyond the grave. Lord, help us, empower us by your Spirit to live for the things that truly matter in light of eternity, to enjoy life in this world, to trust in you through all the ups and downs, but ultimately to invest in those things that don't go back in the box when we're done on this earth but to continue on into eternity. And thank you that you give us the opportunity to invest in those things that truly matter. We pray these things in your name.